Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Over several episodes of Teaching Matters this season, we have talked about issues related to STEM education. If you've listened to recent episodes, you learned about the Noyce Fellowship Program at Ohio University, as well as Mashea Ashton's Digital Pioneers Academy in Washington, D.C. Those are just a few of the examples, and common to all of them are specific programs uh, that are being undertaken in specific schools or, in some cases, universities. Today, we'll take a bit of a different track and learn about an association in New York City called Math for America, an organization devoted to elevating and connecting math and STEM educators so that they can excel. My guest is Dr. John Ewing, a 10-plus year president for Math of America, which has over 1,000 New York City public school teachers in its fellowship program. Prior to leading Math for America, John was a professor of mathematics at Indiana University, where he also served as chair of that department for two years. And John was also a 14-year-plus executive director of the American Mathematical uh, American Mathematical Society prior to joining Math for America. John, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. So, so I think that the um, the best way to start is to have you talk about what Math for America is as an organization and the initiatives that your organization undertakes to promote STEM and math education in the city. Yeah. So um, let's see. First of all, we're we're a fellowship program, uh, a fellowship program for teachers who are already in the classroom. Um, and in both math and science, I should add, mm-hmm. um, we have two goals in this program. One is to keep the most accomplished teachers that we can find in math and science, to keep them in the classroom longer. Not forever, but to keep them there longer than they, than they tend to stay now. And the second is to actually change the teaching profession itself, to somehow find a way to make it more exciting, make it more attractive, and eventually both convince good teachers to stay, but also convince young people to consider teaching as a career. Mm-hmm. So here, here's what we do. We, we first, first of all, we, we try to find the best people we can, a complicated application, a day-long interview for those people that make it through the application, lots of information about content, about uh, people's transcripts. There's a little test of content knowledge. There's some lesson plans. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff, and we try to locate people that are the best we can find in math and science, and we bring them into this to this fellowship. Um, it's a four-year fellowship. It's renewable, and I'll say something about that in a minute. But first, it it pays them fifteen thousand dollars a year. So that's that's a lot of money, and it's <laughs> yeah. it's an incentive. Um, but it's actually to compensate them for all the work that they do in the in the program itself in the community. So we we've built this lively community of people, uh, workshops, usually evenings after I mean, this all happens after teachers get back from school. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have workshops in math or in science, in pedagogy or policy or equity issues or anything at all that professional teachers might be really interested in. Um, And we run about 900 workshops a year um, organized into courses, so into about 400 different courses. And the most important thing is that the teachers get to choose 
what they take entirely it's entirely up to them we're not fixing anybody mm -hmm. it's just things that are of interest to them and about two-thirds of those workshops are taught created and taught by the teachers themselves mm -hmm. um, so that really puts the teachers in charge of things here um, and um, for a lot of these teachers, since a lot of these workshops, by the way, are, are in math or science that, that isn't necessarily taught in school. It's just math or science that people are really interested in, latest research and things, uh, mm -hmm. just filling in some, some things about mathematics that they'd never taken before. Um, so it changes what the teachers do. It changes how they feel about the profession. It makes it more exciting, a, a little bit the way um, the, the profession is for people in universities where they take seminars and colloquia and it's right. kind of an exciting intellectual atmosphere. Uh -huh. um, and secondly, it really reinforces for them, I think, the fact that they're trusted and respected to sort of develop their own professional lives themselves. We have over a thousand teachers, as you said before, in New York City. We, there's actually a program in New York State that's separate from ours, but that's modeled exactly on ours, we helped to get it up and running, that has another thousand teachers in it. So that's a couple thousand of these master teachers. Um, and for them, it's really changed what, um, it, ch it changes what teaching feels like for them. And, and, uh, and I think we have lots of evidence that they, they stay longer because of this. Um, that's only, that's, a total of 2,000 teachers. That's about 10% uh, of the math and science teachers in the state of New York. Mm -hmm. But um, but it, it actually leverages a lot because it not only changes things for them, but it we have, again, evidence that it changes the, the environment in the schools that they're in. And uh, it changes their colleagues as well. So it's a start at trying to change things. And if nothing else, we keep these unbelievably talented teachers teaching a little longer in schools. Sure. So, so a couple follow-up questions. Um, the, the first one, so you have, you set, as you said, over 900 workshops per year. Can you give, uh, with that many, you have so much to choose from in answering this question, but can you give an example of, you know, a for instance of what one of those workshops might focus on? Yeah, so, so it's almost... Uh, I mean, it's the, the variety is is incredible. But mm -hmm. so first, there there um, there are lots of just plain content workshops. So a few years ago, a teacher found a, found an interesting paper, biology teacher, in cell motility, in, you know, the way cells move around in various ways. So they the the teachers put together a three course mini course, so three workshop mini course that happens over a period of weeks. In to, to go through this research paper to talk about it. And the reason that one always sticks in my mind is because at the end, the very last thing they did was they had a an amoeba race where they gathered <laughs> amoebas from New York City puddles. And don't ask me how they did it, but somehow they had a race <laughs> to see which one made it to the end in that. But um, so there, there's a piece of research that not, not necessarily, I guess you could have amoeba races in school, but it, it was just a... It was just a piece of research that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the curriculum, but uh -huh. it was because they were really interested in it. But a lot of these, so a huge portion of these, um, are, are things that we call professional learning teams. So the workshops are 
uh, and th th there's a special structure that we've created over time. They tend to be between 15 and 20 teachers. They're always co-facilitated by two teachers. And they tend to be on subjects that people are really interested in. So one of those that's been very popular is a, 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 a AP Calculus one. There's also one in AP Chemistry and AP Physics. But um, that, that's ongoing. So these meet virtually every month throughout the year. Um, they sort of talk about topics, problems that people have had. They're structured in a way that makes sure that every single person in the in the workshop uh, gets a chance to interact and talk. So they're they're very lively. They're they're not lectures in any sense. They're conversations, but they're these sort of structured conversations about what's going on in the classroom. And finally, there's a long series of workshops that we've had. We have a lot of teachers here in New York City who are really interested in issues of equity and inclusion, mm -hmm. and um, there's an ongoing series of workshops uh, about, um, well, just issues of, of color and, uh, and things that are going on, policy decisions. Uh, anyway, just sure. so it, it's the gamut of things, you know, from, from, from math and science, that's not even stuff in the curriculum, down to the most basic of kind of policy issues about teaching. Mm -hmm. So the, the second follow-up question I have, let's say that I'm one of the teachers in, you know, one of the boroughs that you've reached out to and I've passed through the selection process. As I'm in the program, um, you know, w what will my commitment be for being a fellow? Like, um, are there a certain number of workshops that I'm required to attend? Um, how many of them are optional? You know, those sorts of logistical issues. Yeah. So, um so virtually everything is optional, not quite, because almost if you first come into the fellowship, you have to, um, there, there's sort of an orientation workshop mm -hmm. that you take. But um, the minimum requirement is seven workshops per year. Sounds like almost nothing, and, and it is sort of almost nothing, but that's kind of deliberate. We want people to be here because they really are interested in what's going on. Right. Um, when we when we look at the numbers, I mean, almost everybody has way more than seven uh -huh. workshops, uh, and we have people that go all the way up to forty something. I'm not sure how else they spend their time, but <laughs> but are but but people take a lot more than that. But it's really up to them to sort of decide how engaged they want to be and what they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things is that, as I said before, this is a renewable fellowship. So you can apply for a second fellowship and even a third, although we don't have many teachers there yet. But, um, but we do expect more of people both to get into the second fellowship and also once they're in the second fellowship. So how, how engaged they are in the program sort of is important if if they want to have a subsequent fellowship mm -hmm. those more senior people then go out and spend a lot more of their energy um sort of talking either in their own school or sometimes in other schools or sometimes engaged in national programs uh and sometimes just engaged in math for america itself they sure. really so so um so we let people choose and if somebody gets a first fellowship, they're a great teacher, and all they want to do is take seven workshops a year, that's okay. Um, we, we'd like them to be more engaged than that, but it's perfectly fine to be engaged that much. Um, 
chances are they won't they won't stay on in the program. But that, um, but it, but it's really up to them. Right. We trust them. So y- your philosophy of getting uh, teachers who are you know in in similar subject areas together is very intentional. That's obvious in your website, and it's obvious in the way that you describe it. We know that there is sort of a, a three-year risk span for new teachers where if they make it through the first three years and stick with it, you know, there's a good chance they will continue, but a lot don't make it through that. With your philosophy of getting, you know, a lot of times we think that, you know, it's really important for a teacher to get embedded into the culture of their school building. And, and that's true. Your philosophy is also to say that they need to be embedded within a disciplinary culture um, with other uh, similar teachers. Can you talk about why you think that is so important um, and and maybe also start to talk about if you've been able to determine um, success of your program in helping teachers have um, a more sustainable career path? Yeah. Um, so let's see. Let me let me touch on the last one first. That um, so we we do have lots of evidence that the the retention for the teachers in this program is is way better than comparable teachers. So we've you mm-hmm. know we've taken a control group of people, same age, same professional age same characteristics in New York City, and our retention is just hands down better. Uh-huh. Now, that's not surprising. Of course, we're paying them an extra $50,000 <laughs> sure. a year. And, but, but, uh, but I think genuinely, we, we ask them and they, they, they say over and over again that it's this community that they find exciting and mm-hmm. interesting and lively. Um, there are two things about, about your other points, I guess. One is, we, we do believe that content is really important. If you're going to teach something, you really need to know it and be interested in it and love it, be passionate about it. Um, and so we do believe that people in mathematics, for example, should be around other, other people in mathematics and, and sort of feel that they are mathematicians. They are mathematicians. I mean, if they're teaching high school, I'll say something about the levels also maybe, but... Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, one of the great virtues of this program is precisely that people don't stick together in their own discipline. When we added science to this program, this started off being a math program, and then right. in 2013 we added science, um, we, everybody was worried. Uh, I mean, I wanted to add science because I wanted it to be broader and I thought it would make a bigger impact if people sort of saw that it was STEM, not just, mm-hmm. uh, not just math. Um, but everybody was worried that the scientists would all go off in the corner and just talk to one another, and the math people would go off into a corner and talk to one another. But that's not the way it was. In fact, when we first added workshops in science, all the math people signed up before the science people got a chance. Um, and we've discovered that the math people talk desperately want to talk to the science people, and the chemistry people want to talk to the biology people and the physics people have to talk to the computer science people. And and this is the only chance that they get to do this in this kind of atmosphere where they're all mixed together and where they can take workshops in one another's areas and find out about things and compare notes. And so the, dis- the crossing between the disciplines is really important. 
So is the crossing among levels. So this, this program is high school, middle school, and even some elementary, although of the thousand teachers, it's maybe five or six percent are elementary. Sure. That's growing. But mm-hmm. but it's high school is the biggest chunk, and then middle school, and then a little bit of elementary. Mm-hmm. But the high school teachers never have a chance to talk to middle and elementary teachers, and mm-hmm. the other way around. And again, this is a sort of almost not quite unique, but it's a it's a, a rare opportunity for them to talk to one another um, about things and to sort of find out how what the problems are in various areas and um, and compare notes. It's sort of it's it's a it's the way real professionals who are really interested in education as a whole would 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 like to to act. Uh, and finally, there's one other kind of mixing that's equally important. We we have teachers in this program from the most prestigious schools in New York City, and from Stuyvesant and uh, Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech and these big, what are called exam schools. But we also have teachers from the very toughest schools in the South Bronx or in the in distant Queens or all across the, the city. And... That's quite deliberate. By the way, it, it doesn't require a huge effort because there are great teachers in all kinds of schools. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they really are great teachers. But the fact that they can interact with one another, the fact from, that a teacher from the South Bronx, from a small school in the South Bronx, can sit next to a teacher from Stuyvesant and compare notes and each of them learn from the other. That's again what real professional interaction should be about, and it just doesn't happen in in schools in a natural way right now. Yeah, uh, just just as a quick anecdote in the field of communication, uh, my college runs a much smaller scale program for faculty in K twelve in the state of Ohio who teach communication concepts. And we started that for the exact same reason. We're actually trying to intermingle higher ed faculty with K-12 faculty. Um, and as you know, because of the positions you've been in, that also doesn't happen. And and I think you're absolutely right that that intermingling um, really um, vitalizes, uh, you know, brings vitality to both of those types of faculty members uh, because they get perspective on what's happening at, at other levels. And it's really valuable, I think, to do that. Um, so if you mentioned that there's a, a statewide model uh, that was created uh, that's similar to uh, Math for America's model um, in the state of New York, are there other, other instances of um, other organizations, uh, you know, that has approached you to try and replicate what you're doing? Well, no, there are not, not many that have approached me. Uh, we have a steady, ongoing effort to try to convince people that um, not that they should run the exact same program, but that these the under the ideas that mm-hmm. underlie this program, the mm-hmm. principles, right. are really important. The first, the first one being um, that we focus on the best teachers we can find. We we really we really look for outstanding teachers uh, and. And we've perfected a process over the years that that allows us to find them. It's not a shallow process, right? We're not looking at test scores or something. We're we're really looking at content knowledge, at 
craft of teaching, knowledge of pedagogy, mm-hmm. and, and of knowledge of students, which in a place like New York City is really important. It sounds very fuzzy, knowledge of students, but it, it, I've been convinced over the years that this is really essential for a great teacher. You have yeah. to know your students and know where they're coming from. And that we have a ways of sort of evaluating those three things and judging them. We, we really do, we pull, pull out some really accomplished teachers. I'm often told that or asked, why on earth would we do this? These are already people who are incredibly accomplished. They don't need fixing. These are people that are really great at what they do. Um, but um, but I, I think that's precisely the point. In this country, we've spent all of our energy in education reform on trying to fix what's broken. Mm-hmm. We always look at the bottom 5% of everything, the bottom 5% of schools or the bottom 5% of teachers or students. But you never build anything that's really great if all you do is focus on what's broken. No one would come into a university as a, say, a new president and say, boy, I'm going to make this into a great university. I'm going to find the bottom 5% of the faculty (laughs) and the ones who only play tennis and don't do anything and uh, get bad teacher reviews, you know, get bad reviews. And and I'm going to either get rid of them or I'm going to somehow sideline them. And now I'm going to have a great university. That's idiotic. Nobody would do that. And, and in business, it's the same thing. You don't focus on what's broken. Of course, you want to fix that. But you focus. If you really want to build something that's excellent, you focus on excellence. That's mm-hmm. just a basic principle in life. And I think we've forgotten that principle in education for some reason. We have become fixated on what's broken in education. Yeah, there's a absolutely. There's a long list, unfortunately, of you know books that you and I have seen over the course of our career that is all about uh, medicalizing education and trying to diagnose what the disease is. And you know, and you're absolutely right that we spend so little time trying to celebrate the success and finding ways to broaden that success. I, I completely agree with that. Um, so one of the uh, things I was curious about in hearing you talk about. Uh, the variety of teachers and, and, and where they come from and that sort of thing. Have you started to either anecdotally or even through direct evidence that you've collected, started to see how the impact of your program is starting to um, influence the students' experience and the classrooms of these teachers? Yeah. So, <laughs> again, a really good question. That I'm, and I'm asked this question all the time. Um, so, first, it, it's it's actually not so easy to do for some technical reasons. Here mm-hmm. in New York City, uh, privacy concerns for the students are of paramount importance. And um, and it's, so it's actually hard to sort of track, for example, to track students of teachers that, that we're using mm-hmm. you know, that are in our program and stuff. But we did, we have done studies. So we, we did one very simple study in New York State, their regents exams, uh, which are these sort of standard exams that have been around for many, many decades. Um, and we can look at the regents exam, the regents scores of the teachers in our program and take a large control group of teachers, again, comparable, um, and look at their region scores. And our teachers have much higher region scores. That's in, mm-hmm. in all the subjects, the, the sciences and, and mathematics, uh, right across the board. They're much higher. 
Here's the problem. That actually doesn't show a whole lot. I hate to say this, you know, I, I, I sort of boast about this maybe, but then I quickly want to admit to people that all it shows is that we're really good at choosing the most accomplished teachers. We can <laughs> right. So, and, and besides that, you know, the, the point is we're, we're not a treatment program. Uh, your comment about disease is, is right on the money. I think that we, we think of sort of education reform as treating some disease. And mm -hmm. so when we look at doing something for teachers, we think about treating them with something. Um, but we're not doing that. We're not fixing them. That's not the point. They they get better. Of course they get better. They're in this fantastic community. But um, but the point is our teachers are already really good. Mm -hmm. Much better, I think, is something that we started doing in recent years, but that it just takes time to gather as, as much evidence as we need. We want lots of stories about teachers that come into a school and now I'll tell you one a little piece of one story. Who The teacher goes into a school, the kids are failing, the school is sort of falling apart, and the teacher creates a new program in science uh, based on, uh, on hydroponics and creating, you know, growing things and, and scientific background of it. The students get involved, they create their own garden and their own farm and and they learn a lot and they go off and they get prizes at science fairs and, and suddenly the whole school is transformed. And all of that came because of an experience the teacher had and the support that they had here at Math for America. Hmm. So we can document that and we have, there are more and more stories like that that sort of show how having the kind of rich um, content-based but also pedagogy focused experience that you have in a, in a program like this with a lot of other teachers around to help support you just makes you way more effective in going off and doing your your own thing in in school and some of those stories are big and flashy and some of them are just little where you come in and you sort of change the culture of a department in a school mm -hmm. but i think if you really want evidence to show that professionalizing teaching like this makes a difference. You just have to collect all of those stories, one after yeah. another, and we're creating a process to do that now, but it takes time. John, you're talking like a communication professor right there. <laughs> hey, before we um, start to run out of time, I want to shift gears just slightly and pick your brain as somebody that's been a leader in, in, in the math field for so long. Um, and because you do writing, um, you know, as part of your role um, with Math for America, you do a lot of writing about, uh, about math. And, you know, one of the things that's always struck me as a, uh, as a student that admittedly took three attempts to pass college algebra, but then eventually ended up teaching statistics to graduate students. There is a process that students go through, and many students um, do not find personal connections to what they're learning in math, um, and, and they just stop trying. Um, and I think that was me for a while, and then eventually I refound that connection. For, as a math educator and somebody that's been you know, a leader in this field, 
you know, you you should. I, I'm assuming you have opinions or at least ideas on how we can have the affective component of learning math um, and and more broadly science and other STEM fields have that be more connectable to students' lived experience in ways that draw them in. I just wanted to see if you had comments that you would like to make in that regard. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, I it's it's always slightly embarrassing. I, um, when you're, when you're, especially if you're a mathematics professor, right? The first thing when you tell people or the person sitting next to you on the plane that you're a professor of mathematics and you teach at some university is they'll tell you that it was really hard for them to try to get through some course, usually college algebra. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you, and it's embarrassing <laughs> because that's true. I know it's true. Uh, and I think that this is a kind of tragedy um, it's a, a long and complicated story about why mathematics has was made into the sort of the obstacle uh, for so many students in college. That was a deliberate thing, and actually that it has roots back right after the Second World War, when people, when the GI Bill flooded colleges and they needed some way to screen students out, hmm. uh, and mathematics turned out to be the ideal tool. Another story. I think that the the thing is, um, first, for a lot of students, maybe who aren't wildly interested in mathematics, um, they they will be best served by having people standing in front of them who love mathematics, who are inspired by it, who find it fun, who see the joy in mathematics. You're never going to convince students to like mathematics if you're standing in front of them and you don't particularly like it yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the, the first thing. I think knowing mathematics is really important. On the other hand, the other thing that's really important is what's known as the growth mindset. This is a brilliant idea by a woman named Carol Dweck. Yep. Wrote a great book on it. And this is, in mathematics, for some reason, people are just determined to think that there are math people and there aren't math people. Mm -hmm. And that, and, and they just, they don't understand that learning mathematics, I mean, if you want to be a research mathematician and study algebraic topology or something, then okay, you, you, you really need to have some strong interest and, and there is something called talent. And so you need that. But to learn college algebra or school mathematics or anything like that, it's it's just a matter of hard work. It's hard work. It's, you know, there's a lot of thought. And But if you're convinced that it's something else, if you're convinced that you're not a math person, then it makes it 10 times as hard. So you've got to convince, the teacher has to convince the students that they can learn this stuff. And there are ways to do that. There are ways to sort of start by giving people problems that they can solve, not trivial problems, hard problems that they can solve and convince them, build up confidence, build them, build the idea that it's just a matter of working hard and thinking in certain ways. And, and those two things, somebody that loves mathematics and, and sees it as something that's joyful, but who also really believes that every student sitting in front of them can learn the subject and learn it well, those two things are the secret ingredient to, to 
great teaching. And unfortunately, I, I, I know I've been around for a long time. I know that there are lots of math teachers out there at all levels, both middle and high and university, who don't have one or the other of those two attributes. Yeah, it's a great explanation. The, um, the, the faculty member that flipped the switch for me tricked me into loving the linear equation because she told me that there was a story behind data by using that. And, you know, once, once I understood that and could use math as a way to verbalize stories or, you know, as a way to present, uh, you know, a, a way of describing a story in a different way, it all made sense. And, and before that, it didn't make sense. But it, but it was exactly the type of teacher that you just described. She loved it. And she knew her students, which is something you also said. And she was able to put her love for statistics and math uh, alongside her knowledge of her students and transform a bunch of communication majors in a master's program into people that enjoyed quantitative work. You know, And that's hard to do. But you're, you're exactly on point about what it takes to do that. You're lucky because you you have you found that teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, most people don't. Most people, and this is the tragedy again with mathematics is the vast majority of people out there had an unsuccessful last math course, mm-hmm. and so they remember math not as a great, joyful, wonderful thing, but they just remembered as something that they didn't do too well in, and that's that's terrible. I feel awful about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, the last question I have for you to go back to Math for America, um, you know, our hope is that uh, people nationally, when they're listening to this podcast and, and seek to learn more about Math for America uh, by going to the website, which, of course, we'll have linked in the text accompanying the podcast. Um, are there are there ways that you can work with organizations, even if it's just informal consulting? I'm just, you know, you have what I think is a, is a really um, – great philosophy on how to help teachers be retained in the field, which you're absolutely right. That's what we need to have. Um, this is something that I would hope would be of interest to people in other states besides uh, New York. Um, is that the type of service that you're hoping to be able to provide as to you know broaden um, uh, or at least make connections with other organizations that are amenable to your philosophy? Yeah, we so we we do we're we're glad to do that. We're glad to provide advice. We have some written material, and um and and that's our aim. Um, we're actually we 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 made a real effort um, back in 2011 2012 to get a national program that would kind of foster this kind these kinds of programs. Again, not exactly the same program, but foster something mm-hmm. across the country. And would would get some some funding from the federal government. The pre- President Obama at the time actually announced a national master teacher corps, but it never materialized for a complicated set of reasons. Um, we're we're going to keep trying that again. This country, this country's math and science education would really profoundly change if we had a national core of say 50,000 of these spectacularly accomplished teachers in programs in regions around the country that were sort of modeled on this on this idea that's about 10% there're about half a half a million math and science teachers in the country and if we had 10% of them in some some core like this in these communities around the country this would be a different country at least for STEM education. So 
it's expensive, but it the, it would be money that would really transform the nation. Well, but the scope and the way that you describe it, as as I would say, only a mathematician could, it's attainable. And and so I think that having that conversation um, and continuing to have that conversation in multiple arenas is really important. I just want to applaud, you know, what you've been able to do with Math for America in New York and hope that, um, you know, in your leadership and others that will hear this, that we can continue to have that discussion nationally, uh, because I think you're right. I mean, there's no question that um, we have to do better as a country and how we support our teachers. And you all are doing a phenomenal job um, with the teachers in New York. And let's hope that it can be broadened. Yep. I hope so. My guest today was Dr. John Ewing, Director of Math for America, an organization devoted to building communities, promoting professional development, and recognizing successes in math and STEM education. John, thank you for giving us your time this afternoon and being a guest. And I hope that as you get more stories um, about math education and its successes with your program, um, please feel free to come back and, and talk to us about them. Okay. Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at WOUB.org slash listen. And of course, we're also available in just about any of the popular podcasting access points that you have on your phone, computer, or elsewhere. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook, search for Teaching Matters Podcast, and then reach out to us through that mechanism. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Thank you for listening. Thank you.